Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of March 26th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll discuss NCAA tournament matters, including Loyola Chicago's Cinderella run to the Final Four, Duke's ouster in the Elite Eight, and whether any women's team other than UConn matters. We'll also talk about protesters blocking the entrance to the Sacramento Kings Arena after the police killing of Stefan Clark, and what that protest signifies about the state of activism in sports. And finally, we'll look at Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, and the conversation they started about mental health. The great and powerful Stefan Fatsis is off this week. Joining me in our DC studio is Gene Demby. Gene is a correspondent for NPR's Code Switch, a blog and podcast about race and identity. It's great to have you back, Gene. Thank you for having me, man. And with us from Palo Alto is Joel Anderson of ESPN, who is at the West Regional in LA to watch the Michigan Wolverines shoot four for 22 from three in a scintillating four point win over Florida State. You really know how to pick them, Joel. Oh, man. Well, you know, I like games as much like football games as possible. (laughs) (laughs) You got a, you know, a game in the 50s. That's really your speed uh, in uh, in 2018. (laughs) The star of the West Regional, Joel, was Leonard Hamilton. Oh, my God. The Florida yeah. State coach, uh, Joel, you tw- yeah. you tweeted that Hamilton was a personal hero of yours for refusing to wear a button-up shirt. Oh, yeah, and tie. Yeah, I mean, he just clearly, this was a decision he's made. I never got a chance to ask him about it, but <laughs> I can't find a picture of him in a tie. So clearly this is something that he's made is a decision that he's going to go with for the rest of his life. So you know the other thing that Leonard Hamilton doesn't do uh. besides... Uh, mm-hmm. Where it's high, is get his team to foul when they're down with four points with 11 seconds to go. Here was his explanation in an interview with CBS's uh, Dana Jacobson after the game. Take me through the final seconds of this game. Why didn't you guys foul? Uh, what are you talking about? Down the stretch there, the end of the game, the final seconds, 11 seconds left on the do, clock. Do you think that the game came down to the final seconds of the game? I'm asking you, though, why that decision in the final seconds of the game? The game was over. The best part of that is how saucy he is the whole time. Well, he did the, like, shoulder turn like he was going to walk off (laughs) and then thought better of it. How does this fit in with the Leonard Hamilton you know and love, Joel? I think, and he did ultimately apologize for that uh, yesterday, but I think it fits in quite well. And I think you have to take the context of his career. He's 69 years old. He's been a college basketball coach for over 30 years. He's never made it to the final four, right? And so he's on the cusp of it with not his most talented team. And I could see how in that moment, asking him that question would seem to imply that his team gave less than its best effort to the end of the game. And that's something that they take tremendous pride in, uh, in that program. You know, the, the junkyard defense that they talked about all game, you know, the junkyard dog defense that they talked about all weekend. And, you know, we played for all 40 minutes. And 
asking him that question. To All 40 him, minutes. I could see <laughs> That's a yeah, right. Joel, they call their defense 39 minutes and 49 seconds of hell. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. I was at the game, and it was so bizarre to watch Terrence Mann just, you know, back off and not foul. I was like, oh, maybe they know something about the clock or the score that I don't right. know. Like, I was like, maybe maybe they're smarter than me, and they've, it's, they've calculated, they've got somebody crunching numbers, and they've concluded that they can't come back. I was like, okay, maybe maybe I don't know what the hell was going on. And so when that came up after the game, I was like, oh, yeah, that was weird to see them give up like that. So it was that bizarre that it made me think, oh, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm watching right now. Right. I mean, we're also habituated to this idea, like the, the, the procession of free throws at the end of these close games. Yeah. That is like so yeah. it is like really shocking to see like, wait, what is happening there? And apparently, you know, the decision not to foul was 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 complicated by the fact that the other team can't is not a great free throw shooting team. Like, I mean, who knows? Yeah. We've all seen, you know, that the very like sluggish parade of free throw trading at the end of these games. Um, and maybe one out of a thousand times does this like actually like we're down to the benefit of the team that's down, right? Because they stop the clock or whatever. Um, they stop yeah. the clock a couple times. Maybe they get the ball back and get a chance at a shot with like, you know, with a couple with a second left. Right. Um, after all that. Yeah. But, That's the thing. The thing I didn't understand is people defending it by saying, oh, obviously they weren't going to come back and win. Well, sure. Like, but if there's like a 1% chance to win, you, you still got to foul the dude. The thing that I find even more bizarre about it is that um, Leonard Hamilton made $825,000 in bonus money wow. based on oh. where they progressed in the tournament. And if they won that game, he would have made another $275,000. If I have a 1% chance of getting $275,000, I am fouling. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's not like anybody had anywhere to be. We were on West Coast. It wasn't even even dark outside yet. It was a frustrating game for them. And they went, there were a couple of stretches um, from the late first half through the second half. There were like twice that they went like, you know, 10 minutes between field goals. And so you could, you know, playing in that sort of a game probably had, it wore them down a little bit because as much as they're used to doing that to people, it, it, it did not happen to them to that magnitude that year. That that was the lowest shooting percentage they'd shot in the game all year, and it was hmm. the lowest point total that they'd had in the game all year. And so it's eminently possible that they were just frustrated and were like, the hell with this. And that sounds weird, but it happens a lot. I mean, it happens a lot in sports. You just don't ha- happen to see it in those sort of situations. Do we know like if Leonard Hamilton has a long history of, you know, in those situations, you know, down four, down five, whatever, with, you know, uh, some minimal amount of time left on the clock of just not fouling like, Oh, the game's over. Does he, is that, is that an aberration? There was a, there was a game, there was a game like in five or six years ago against Virginia tech where they came back from like eight points down with a minute to go or a minute and a half to go. So he's done it in his career. The whole thing just doesn't make much sense. I mean, there was a game in the tournament two years ago, Texas A&M and Northern Iowa, where A&M came back from 12 points down with 35 seconds to go. Oh, I remember this, yeah. I mean, so so these things happen. Um, But let's not focus too much on our friend (laughs) Leonard. I don't think he's – it was just like a brain fart or something. Hopefully he'll get over it. Um, But – Joel, I'm curious, you tweeted the other day about how Michigan is a team that you think is just incredibly fun to watch, that you really love their game. Um, they play kind of similar to how Loyola Chicago and and Villanova plays, I feel like, in terms of shooting a bunch of threes, being 
very like team oriented and not mm-hmm. having one guy who's you know playing hero ball. Is that kind of what you see from all of them, or is Michigan unique in your eyes? No, no, no. I think that's probably right. Um, they, you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of motion, a lot of free flowing. They've got you know big guys that can shoot, like Mo Wagner, who's you know the leading scorer and the leading rebounder. There's a guy who has three point range and shoots close to you know forty percent from three. So you don't tend to see teams shoot that well in college, and I mean it's something that it's noticeable when you see it. And I should also note that like college basketball is a lot better in person than it is on TV because <laughs> on TV, I mean it, it looks it it looks uh, very workmanlike and mm-hmm. it's very laborious. Like you know you're just seeing guys you know work the ball around the perimeter for you know 28 seconds before firing up a shot, but you can feel the intensity and see the intensity a lot better if you're in the arena. And so it makes a little bit more sense. But given that Michigan was notably more fun to watch than the other teams in the regional that I saw, and even, you know, teams I saw that weekend. Yeah. I haven't seen that much of Villanova and maybe that's my West coast bias. Um, (laughs) But I'm sure they're a fun team too. Yeah. I feel like Michigan and Loyola Chicago kind of strangely, you might not have said that before the tournament, but I feel like the talent level on those teams is even Mm -hmm. pretty even like you don't watch Loyola Chicago and be like, these guys are outmatched. I think that Villanova is clearly the best team and has that kind of team philosophy, but with just better players. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Cause you know, at the end of this, people say, Oh, teams are underseeded or overseeded or whatever. And I could totally understand why you might overlook Loyola Chicago, right? Like they lost five games this year and they don't play in a great conference, but it's just, it's just really weird to look at a team that's an 11 seed from a mid-major conference and they just are like taking it to team. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like they're, you know, these aren't flukes the way that they're winning. They're not winning at the buzzer. They're actually, I mean, they wore down Kansas state and that's just kind of jarring to see, right? Well, Joel, I mean, they, they won their first three games by four points. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they did they did take it to Kansas State, but what are what are your thoughts on Loyola Chicago, Gene? No, it's it's interesting because on that side of the bracket now you have Loyola Chicago and Michigan, obviously, and those are two teams that don't have. I mean, obviously, Loyola Chicago has no NBA talent on it. I think there's one dude on Michigan who's supposed to come out uh, who might be drafted uh, in twenty in the next draft in the upcoming draft, Uh, and so there's not a ton of NBA talent on that side of the on that side of the bracket in the Final Four. On the other side, though, I mean, you have uh, Villanova and you have Kansas, and they'll have they'll probably send a few people to the league. Um, and so, I guess Michigan has to play that style, right? They have to play this sort of uh, this like this the, where the ball moves around a lot, right? Um, where they get a lot of contributions mm-hmm. from a lot of people. But I guess it was was interesting watching the tournament to the extent that I was watching it up until like last weekend or the last couple of days has been the ways that one and dones all the big one and dones basically. None of them covered themselves in glory, with the exception of maybe Marvin Bagley, right? Like, the rest of them uh, kind of came and went. I mean, DeAndre Ayton is done. I mean, he, like, I mean, they got, like, stomped by Buffalo of all teams, right? Um, yeah. and, and they had no, it's not going to have any bearing. He's going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft uh, this summer. But, you know, it's, it's a reminder of, like, how much college basketball, like, is is still, like, a, a, in a in a way that the NBA is not, right? It's still, like, a like a game that, that you can sort of get by. I mean, talent matters, but there's a, experience matters a lot more, right? Um, and if you have, like, a good mix of both of those things, um, you're just going to be way better off. I mean, Villanova is a program that has the best record in college basketball over the last four or five years, I think. Um, and they yeah. have they have almost no five-star guys, I think, going to that school at this point. Um, 
I think they have some like four star guys there, but like no like obvious NBA players when they when they go to the school anyway. Right. And they're the best team in college basketball. And it's weird you said that about Aikman. I think that's 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 one of the things about one and done guys, right? Is that we see the talent. We see, you know, oh mm-hmm. that guy, he can jump, he's got all you know, this tremendous set of skills. But one thing you read after the game is that uh, Buffalo said, oh, it wasn't what DeAndre Aiden could do to us, it's what we could do to him. And right. basically, they took advantage of his inexperience mm-hmm. and inability to play defense, right? So right. They, like, he, he's not a rim protector, um, which, you know, may end up being a problem at the next level uh, if he's going to be that size, right? But, like, they, you know, that college team figured out a way to take advantage, but they were actually going at him, mm-hmm. which you would think would happen. But, you know, that's the thing about being one and done, right? I mean, they're not all Carmelo. They're not all, like you said, Derrick Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're guys that are are flawed and they've got a lot of talent, but they don't necessarily have all their games together. So it's like you 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 can't count on winning. It's a, it's a, it's best to have the most talent, but it doesn't guarantee you anything, especially in, you know, uh, a one-and-done scenario like that. Absolutely. I think that the fact that Duke didn't get past Kansas – is not because they had a bunch of one and ones. I mean, one and done. Sorry. Look at the performances in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, Bagley only got nine shots, Absolutely. but he was, yeah. you know, f- had a double double. I yeah. think Wendell Carter, who's their other um, probably mm-hmm. a lottery pick, mm-hmm. the refs basically like fouled him out of the game. He only played twenty <laughs> yeah. minutes, but he was good when he yeah. was mm-hmm. on the floor. Duval was good. Trent was good. The dude who cost him the game was Grayson Allen. Yeah, like, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the experienced Teddy Senior, and mm-hmm. if that. Ball, you know, the the last shot had, you know, tipped over through the hoop. They would have they would have won the game. So I'm not I'm not really buying that like Duke's lack of experience really cost them there. And the the funny thing is that Duke for like all the many years in which they were kind of like on their high horse about mm-hmm. how oh we're you know we want three and four year players. We're not like playing this like John Calipari game. They have become like the nexus Absolutely. of one and done in college basketball next year. They're, they're having um, Zion Williamson is going mm-hmm. there, R.J. Right. Barrett. They've got the number one, two, and three recruits. Recruit, yep. mm-hmm. And so I right. think it might be a different conversation a year from now about how good a strategy it is to have a bunch of freshmen on your college basketball team. As a Philadelphian, it's just like frustrating to see Villanova become like suddenly become like Duke Light in that way. <laughs> be sort of like Jay Wright is always talking about, you know, the Villanova way and stuff. And it's just, like, I mean, I, I love Jay Wright. Jay Wright actually was the coach of um of my alma mater, Hofstra, uh, when I was there. Um, yeah, I know it's crazy, right? Like now to see Villanova, like like people talk about them in that same way is like excruciating because obviously, like yeah. I'm insane American, I hate the yeah. Blue Devils and like the way they were talked about. Um, and now Villanova, uh, one of our our local teams, is suddenly like you know gets talked about in the same like oh they they play the right way right and all that language is like oh yeah that's interesting right right well it, it actually real quick thinking about this right like if this was anybody else if, if this. There's a thought experiment. If you had a team whose best player had nine shots in a game, mm-hmm. couldn't teach his team how to play man-to-man defense and scrapped it <laughs> to play zone, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be like, "Hey, man, that guy got out coached, or like, yeah, for some reason couldn't reach those guys." Well, like, I, I just, I haven't heard anybody say that, but I just. I thought I'd throw that out there. R.I.P.T. mentions, man. Coming for you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Everybody in Durham is coming for you now. I feel like we haven't oh. given Loyola enough uh, pub because this is obviously the best story of uh, the tournament so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that they've become a huge story in Chicago. This is not a, a 
squad that you would think of as being like Chicago's you would team, think of DePaul but like or somebody else. Yeah, people are people are going nuts for them. Um, and the really great thing about this is that it's bringing attention to the 1963. Loyola yeah. team. People mm. talk about 1966 Texas Western, five mm. black starters beating Kentucky. That's like kind of the only like, mm-hmm. you know, civil rights landmark that people know in college basketball. But they were showing Jerry Harkness, the star of that 1963 team on TBS all uh, Saturday. Um, and we're starting to hear about the story of this was actually, you know, a team that had a bunch of black starters. Um, and at a time when, you know, these guys, you know, the, they played Mississippi State in the tournament, and you know the governor of Mississippi was basically threatening mm-hmm. Mississippi State that if you like play these guys, then there will be there'll be hell to pay. And like what these mm-hmm. guys went through, it's a really important story for people to know about. It, it is really good to see them back in the spotlight. The only thing that's just kind of grating is just I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm too much of a cynic for this, but it's just you know that you hear um, them talking about oh, you know, Coach Porter Moser saying. You know, this is the Loyola way, and you know, this is, you know, this is what college basketball is all about. And I'm like, dude, okay, yeah. like you didn't, you know, solve the housing segregation crisis. Or anything. Like, you, <laughs> well, it's the same you know, thing. You had, it's the same thing you were saying, Gene, about how, um, you know, this kind of coded language around or just propping up the NCAA with these like kind of happy stories about amateurism. Absolutely. And, I mean, and and I mean, obviously, like everything about uh, college basketball is like is is shaped by race, you know, in all these, like, really, really powerful ways, right? And we did an episode last week on on Code Switch about, um, you know, the whole conversation about compensating athletes is really racially divided. So you have, uh, according to the Washington Post, um, when you ask people whether college athletes should be paid, you know, there's a big racial split there. So 60% of white people say they should not be paid. 54% of black people say they should be paid. There's this way in which, like, watching the tournament, like, that this is all this weird subtext there about, like, who's rooting for who and who's playing the right way, right? All of the language around it is, like, coded, right? And it's all, I mean, especially, I mean, this is, like, why Duke has gotten on our nerves for so long, right? Uh, because they were always, you know, held up as the school who did things the right way. But, I mean, in this system, no one is doing this the right yeah. way. Um, all right, let's... Get to the women's tournament. Um, UConn won its first round game 140 to 52, oh. uh, <laughs> which is a strong performance. They're, uh, they're in the Elite Eight. They're playing on, on Monday night. Um, probably by the time you're, you're listening to this podcast, they will or will not have made the final four. I know mm. what I'm betting on. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a really dumb and tired and old conversation around are they bad for women's no, basketball? Mm. But the but the but here is I do feel like other stories in the women's game do get obscured by their greatness. You know, Shea Serrano mm-hmm. of the Ringer is trying to beat the drum for Oregon, um, and their star player Sabrina Ionescu, who's awesome. She's um, you should you should watch her mm-hmm. highlights. But wondering what you guys think about about her or about this idea that like maybe we're missing a bunch of stuff by focusing on the one one forty to fifty two. I think there is some truth to that, but I also think that UConn, in a way, can sort of highlight the other players because um, last year, I mean, we we got familiar with Mississippi State mm-hmm. um, as a result, right? And I think there was, I don't know what the ratings were for the game. I'm pretty sure it wasn't as high as it was when uh, UConn is normally in the title game, but like we were introduced to South Carolina and Mississippi State by virtue of the fact that UConn had lost. Like, I mean, it would be great 
if, you know, there were teams, you know, of the caliber of the old Pat Summit Tennessee teams that were able to go up against them, especially since uh, Pat Summit and Gino Ariema hated each other That's so right. much, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, they hated but I do think that, like, they're, like a, they're useful for reflecting their greatness on the other people. And so we, you know, in that way, we, we get familiar with other teams. And, um, I, you know, it, I mean, nobody complains. I mean, this is a, a tired argument in that way, but, like, nobody complains when there are other dominant teams in other sports. Um, nobody complains when Usain Bolt, you know, dominates the 100-meter field every year. We don't know who the, the, the second fastest person in the world is, right? So I think that they can be useful, and I think they draw attention to the game. I don't, I don't know how it could be bad, you know, so... So obviously, the one of the more exciting things that happened in the tournament on the women's side uh, has been was Kennedy Carter's game winning shot, uh, Texas yeah. A&M, which which is obviously she's like probably the the she might be the biggest star leaving this tournament. I mean, the, uh, Texas A&M, A&M has been eliminated since, but I mean, she obviously had the the piece in uh, the Players Tribune talking about you know like just how she wanted to have Allen Iverson swag, um, but that shot was like everywhere, right? That I mean, the shot was all over Twitter. Um, so it's like there's ten seconds left. She takes the most insane probably ill-advised pull-up that you could take for as a freshman right she comes on the court she has right. a, a teammate cutting to the basket and she pulls up for three and nails it which of course is amazing um but also is like she was talking about having Allen iverson swag but it's one of those things like you almost get the sense that she doesn't know <laughs> like like it's courage if you're if you're scared and you do it anyway but she almost didn't know that that was like a bad shot to take she had like that jr smith like uh irrational confidence that happened like yo i'm just gonna pull up and go um i wonder if this puts the aggies on the on the map a little bit um even though this had, was like far removed from the orbit of yukon and their dominance because she's a freshman she'll be around for another couple of years um and they'll be able to like have this like legit star be sort of the lodestone for like recruiting and a bunch of other stuff like that. But like, yeah, the problem is, is always that like, this is like us talking about NBA basketball, right? Like we can have all these other interesting storylines about who the MVP is or whatever. But like at the end of the day, like, I mean, well, maybe not this year, but the, the, the you know, the title goes through Golden State, right? But there's a way in which like there's still other stories that are useful um, or sort of that are like fun to follow when we like to look away a little bit. Well, the idea of swag and women's basketball is really interesting because, you know, with the rise of Steph Curry and the mm-hmm. NBA, like one of the things, you know, beyond his like amazing shooting ability, one of the things that people love the most about him is like the stuff that he does pregame Absolutely. with like his warm up routine and his like the way that he can dribble and get shots off from wherever on the court. Some of the stuff that we like love the most now about you know, the best NBA players is like stuff that is like below their end. And mm-hmm. so I think you're seeing that with UNESCO. Um, and mm-hmm. I think she'll only continue to get better. Mm-hmm. She like already has the record for most triple doubles um, uh, as a, a woman in division one, like, and she's a sophomore, sophomore which is, how yeah. is that possible? Like that doesn't, I mean, I gotta like, right. I gotta hate on the other women that came before her a little bit because like, <laughs> right, right. it doesn't seem like that's that much of a record to be, yeah. to be beating, but no, <laughs> right. still, still respect to her for, for getting triple doubles. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Stefan Clark and the state of activism in sports, 
wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Gene and Joel and I are going to talk about a piece in the Players Tribune by Steve Francis, who talks about going from being a drug dealer to an NBA star and the circuitous route that he took to get there. It's a good segment. It'll be a good segment. Um, And if you uh, are listening to this, probably means you're a fan of the show. Why don't you want to listen to that? It's good. You'll enjoy it. To get it, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On the night of Sunday, March 18th in Sacramento, two police officers killed 22-year-old Stefan Clark in his backyard. Clark, who is black, was suspected of breaking windows. He was not armed. He was shot 20 times. After the Sacramento Police Department released video and audio footage of Clark's killing, protesters blocked a highway and shut down the entrance to the Sacramento Kings Arena, preventing fans from entering and delaying the start of Thursday's game between the Kings and Hawks. After the game, Kings owner Vivek Ranadive went on the floor and grabbed a microphone. Here's what he had to say. We here at the Kings recognize that we have a big platform. It's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. It's a responsibility that we take very seriously. And we stand here before you, old, young, black, white, brown, and we are all united in our commitment. On Sunday, players from the Kings and the Boston Celtics took the court wearing T-shirts that said accountability, we are one on the front, and had Stefan Clark's name on the back. They also released this public service announcement. These tragedies have to stop. There must be accountability. Black, white, brown. We are one. We are one. One. We will not stick to sports. We will not shut up and dribble. This is bigger than basketball. Change can be uncomfortable. Change is necessary. We need to talk. We need to act. We matter. We must unite. Say his name. Stephon Clark. Stephon Clark. We must unite. Uh, The sad truth, Jane, is that we've seen a lot of this before. Obviously, the killing of an unarmed black man, we've seen that a bunch of times before. Mm -hmm. We've seen NBA players or WNBA players or NFL players wearing shirts that say, I can't breathe. They're Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. But protesters blocking an NBA arena, that's something we had not seen before. I think what was interesting about uh, Rana Diva's response is – the politics of the fan base for the NBA sort of required some a response that, if not exactly that response, then a response that would have been at least sympathetic to the problem that's being discussed, right? So um, what we know about NBA fans uh, is that they skew democratic, right? They tend to be urban. The majority of NBA television fans are, are, are people of color. Um, they're a little bit younger than the NFL's fans who are older, who are much whiter. I think I think like 70-something percent of the, NBA tele- the NFL's television audience is white. They tend to skew slightly Republican in their voting. And so there's, I think, an expectation around issues of police violence that there's a way in which conversations about uh, issues of police violence in the NBA have to play out differently. I think there's like different expectations for what is, uh, I think, what the fans would want from their players. It's interesting that the WNBA is, uh, has been even more outspoken and their, their audience, their fan base skews even more democratic. They have the, by far the most left leaning fan base of, uh, in American sports. And so, there's a way in which the players and I guess the coaches and in the case of Ron Adive, the owners are insulated from some of the criticisms that have greeted NFL players when they've sort of taken similar stands. The one thing that has 
really sort of difficult to parse here with the NBA and um, and, and other people that uh, other professional leagues that um, you know want to make statements around police violence is there's always sort of a blurring of the lines between what actually is activism and what mm-hmm. is philanthropy, right? And it is very important and it's very useful to have people with a platform to make these statements and say, hey, look, this is unacceptable. But the problem is that they don't say that. They don't say that it's unacceptable. They say we need to unite. Right. We need to have a conversation. The time is now. We are one. When I mean, these are not actually things that are true, right? <laughs> right. It, I mean, I don't. <laughs> we are not one. We are not united. And a conversation is useful in as much as it gets started. Uh, conversations about policy and like trying to determine who who's accountable and how you're going to hold them accountable. And that next step never seems to happen. We've kind of just been stuck. Um, at these symbolic gestures, and, has, and it, it's never really advanced past that. And I don't know that it's the NBA's responsibility to make it advance past that, but it's just hard not to be cynical and, and to not think that, okay, they're doing this to placate a fan base and people that were really upset that night. You know, I mean, they, it, it blocked their business. And so you, you could say that the Kings felt a responsibility to say something that night because that protects their business. But I'm curious to know what happens next. It's it's interesting to think about Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. and how much mm-hmm. people were unwilling to hear what he had to say um, because of what he was saying or because of the way that he initiated his protest. And I think it's both. But mm-hmm. um, if you just separate out the whole like kneeling during the national anthem part, I think Kaepernick was saying when asked the things that you're kind of asking for Joel. He was talking about systems and about power yeah. and not saying kumbaya, we're all in this together. And you know, those you know, the the clips that we heard at the beginning of this segment, I think it's it's a important question. Is it important mm-hmm. um or is it good enough at this moment that they just said something, even if what they said is incredibly banal and maybe not even correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's important that they said something, and I think it's good, right? You don't want them to pretend that it didn't happen, and you don't right. want them, you don't want to create the conditions where people say that this is acceptable in our society. So they've got that covered. It's just really interesting because we actually know who is to blame here. We know who bears the responsibility for accountability, but you can't say it, or they won't say it. It's not like Rana Dive was going out at midcourt and being like, we need to fire these cops. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, there, he could have done that. He just said, you know, I hope that the Sacramento Police Department and, uh, you know, our local county prosecutor or whatever, that, you know, they take action on this so that, you know, that they handle this this case, with, you know, above board and, you know, with the utmost seriousness and blah, 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 blah. But, like, that's that's not what happened. And maybe, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an uncomfortable thing to say and maybe you don't want to put yourself out there like that. But... If you're going to advance a conversation, if you're actually going to make some sort of an impact, if you want to make an impact, you're not going to be able to uh, not piss some people off. And yeah. right now, that just kind of seems to be the priority, to tell people that we care, but without pissing people off. And I just don't know how how you really make an impact if you, if, if you don't go that next step. It's also worth noting, though, that like, the labor arrangements in in the NBA versus the NFL, right, uh, allow players to be be a little bit more outspoken, right? I mean, they have guaranteed contracts, right, and so they can sort of say what's on their mind. Like, I mean, Eric Reed uh-huh. is 
you know, a quality NFL defensive back. And it's basically like, look, like I won't, if it's going to cost me my job or cost me a, a, a future contract, I'll stop kneeling. I'll stop protesting, at least in this way. And he was the most steadfast. Mm-hmm. He was right. He mm-hmm. was right next to Kaepernick from day one. And then when yep. guys like Malcolm Jenkins started to kind of negotiate with mm-hmm. ownership in this way, like, you know, that made Reed uncomfortable. He was like, I'm never going to stop doing this. And it just made me incredibly sad. Mm -hmm. But now he's out there unsigned. It seems obvious why. And it seems like, I mean, I don't blame him, but it seems like he's capitulated. Like, I I think it's instructive on where the NFL owners and the power structure lies. And I mean, same same with the NBA, too. Like, let's not forget that, like, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and, like, Mm -hmm. Craig Hodges, you know, they never really found their way back into the NBA after they made their own, you know, sorts of uh, activist stands. But with Eric Reed, I mean, you know, all the money that the NFL teams are giving, you know, these partnerships and they're going on these listening tours, everything else. I mean, this all started because they wanted Colin Kaepernick to get a job. That doesn't appear that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And not only that, it might potentially end the career of the guy that stood alongside him the whole way. And that's, that's incredibly discouraging, but it, but it's instructive on like where their allegiances actually are, where their their political allegiances actually are. I mean, it was it was remarkable to see Johnny Manziel like trying out last week for a bunch of pro teams, right? And it was like, yeah, of all people, right? Like this is a dude who actually is just not good enough to be in the NFL, right? Like he's not an NFL quality quarterback, right? Um, um, he is getting a shot, whereas Kaepernick has a much like obviously his record is much more decorated and obviously like there's a you know you can argue over like whether or not he should start or whatever but he can, he should at least be on an NFL roster right um did right. you see that Man- Manzel was tweeting about like I don't like when people pit me and Colin yeah, against I saw each that. other yeah. mm-hmm. that was like yeah. and he was very thoughtful about it too it was mm-hmm. especially for yeah. Johnny Manzel <laughs> was not yeah. someone we associate with with thoughtfulness but he was saying like look like he's like the re- and he said that the reason that Kaepernick doesn't have a job is because you know Kaepernick is standing up um is speaking up for these racial issues um which is, you know, remarkable to hear from Johnny Manziel. But it is is striking that, like, I mean, the sort of contorting that's happening in, in the NFL around not bringing Kaepernick in to try out for a spot. Um, but especially, like, Eric Reed, who was, like, by all accounts, is just a quality NFL player, right? He doesn't have, you know, like, you can just sort of argue that Kaepernick, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stupid arguments around systems and, like, whether or not yeah. he, like, like, whether his success was, like, contextual or whatever. But, like, Eric Reed is a good NFL player and he's not going to have a job. And that's because of the politics of the NFL. And it's because of the assumed politics, the presumed politics of the NFL's fan base. You make a really good point, Joel, about the NBA players and the security. Like, De'Aaron Fox is a rookie for the Kings. Like, mm-hmm. he's maybe their best known player if you like disregard Vince Carter. Um, but he could like, if I, I have no idea what De'Aaron Fox's politics are, but he could come out and be like, these police officers need to be fired and he would still have a still job. Have a job bro. Like, um, yeah. and, and I don't know if that means he needs to do that or should do that. But, um, you know, we heard some player in that PSA said, we're not going to shut up and dribble, like referring to the Laura Ingraham thing mm-hmm. about LeBron James. But like, I think NBA players recognize and understand that they do have the ability to speak up maybe in a way that NFL players, um, you know, that NFL players can't. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see how they use that, that power and what they choose to say. You know, Tamir Rice, you know, the, the police shooting of Tamir Rice, a uh, 12-year-old boy, happened right in LeBron's backyard. And LeBron didn't say anything. And I'm not saying that he has to say anything. Like, I mean, you know, that's, 
that's his prerogative, but there's not a player in the NBA who has more power or influence or platform than that guy. In the history of um, the NBA. Like, I mean, he's... In, yeah, in yeah. the history of the sport. Mm-hmm. And he chose to not say anything uh, about it or uh, the police department. We have these expectations of NBA players and say, oh, they could do this. They could join the fight. You know, they've got this voice. And I'm just like, ah, but, you know, maybe they're just rich guys who you know, they, they do care, but they also have their own brands to protect. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess you'd have to show me where, where they've, you know, really been hardline on these sorts of things, or even in the way that Eric Reed has. And it's, it's a reminder of like how, how courageous, whether or not you agree with Colin Kaepernick or not, like how courageous his stance is, right? I mean, he's talking to yep. probably a fan base that is like uh, in, in the aggregate, like diametrically opposed to to what he's saying in his career. I mean, his career is very likely over because of it. Right. Um, and he's yep. saying it, I think, and to to um, to Josh's point in a, in a much more like unalloyed, direct way um, than even NBA players who have way more job security, um, especially NBA stars, um, are not yep. saying. And so that's, that's it's, I think it speaks again to to just how the how audacious and courageous Kaepernick has been in this whole situation. And on LeBron, like, I think it's totally fair to criticize him there, but it was, you know, Tamir Rice was three and a half years ago, um, which is not that long, but I feel like LeBron is kind of a different guy than he was maybe even that short period ago. Like he seems more confident, secure in his beliefs. Mm -hmm. He's said a lot of stuff in the last few years that maybe he wouldn't have said Earlier in his career, he we'll tweeted see. at Donald Trump, "You bum." <laughs> yeah, bum. You're right, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, point well taken. So, I'll be curious to see what he says and does, or or doesn't say and do, in this event. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Earlier this month, the Cleveland Cavaliers' Kevin Love published a piece in the Players' Tribune about having a panic attack during a game in November. He wrote, it was a wake-up call that moment. I thought the hardest part was over after I had the panic attack. It was the opposite. Mm -hmm. Now I was left wondering why it happened and why I didn't want to talk about it. Call it a stigma or call it fear and insecurity. You can call it a number of things. But what I was worried about wasn't just my own inner struggles, but how difficult it was to talk about them. I didn't want people to perceive me as somehow less reliable as a teammate, and it all went back to the playbook I'd learned growing up. Love said in the piece that he'd been inspired by the Raptors' DeMar DeRozan, who tweeted in February, the depression gets the best of me. DeRozan later told the Toronto Star, it's one of them things that no matter how indestructible we look like we are, we're all human at the end of the day, we all got feelings, all of that. Sometimes it gets the best of you, or times everything in the world is on top of you. Um, a lot of different directions that we could go here. I mean, I'm interested both in the subject matter and players talking about their feelings and talking about depression and also just in the platform that they've used and the way that they've chosen to get, uh, the message out. Gene, what do you, what do you make of, uh, the Kevin Love thing and, and him crediting DeMar DeRozan? And that was a, so just 
as a huge NBA fan, that was a remarkable couple of days, right? Because DeMar DeRozan said this and, you know, all these other NBA players are tweeting him like, we got you. Like, you know, they were really supportive. Kevin Love came out a few days later in the Players' Tribune and talked about his struggles with anxiety. And, and it was really remarkable one because like in Kevin Love's essay, there's a bunch of stuff in there. There's like the construction of masculinity in there, right? Like in him sort of like, he said like, you know, he was scared to be found out. And I remember, you know, when he left the court that game, the game that was under question, like that was sort of, I think, if, if I'm remembering correctly, that was around the time that like the Cavaliers had all this internal intrigue about like Kevin Love is not showing up. He like yeah. left the sidelines. Um, and it was it was really interesting to think about like, oh, this is a person who is just actually dealing with a bunch of stuff, right? Um, and it's not about sort of him being aloof or not being a team player, but actually like struggling. Uh, and it changed everyone the re- is going through something was the the headline of right it. absolutely and it changed the changed I think a lot of people's read of you know like oh Kevin Love was just like he just abandoned his team that was struggling at the time right and it changed I think everyone like a lot of people read that much more sympathetically after his 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 essay came out but also and I, I hate to go back to labor again but it also like speaks volumes about how much job security matters um, for NBA players right I mean I think there's a way in which. In in a, in a sport like football, that 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 talking about these things publicly might have sort of negative consequences for your career in some way. And I think there's a way in which NBA players um, enjoy some protections um, that allow people to sort of um, to operate with a little bit more leeway in terms of uh, the stuff they can talk about. I should say personally, watching DeRozan play this season, he's played his best basketball of his career this year. Yeah, and it's sort of complicated the way I understand depression. Right? It's like here's this guy who's operating on like I mean he's shooting career highs from three like he like he's playing fantastic defense he's always been a, a fantastic scorer um but he's having he's having the best season of his career and he's still saying like I struggle with this like yeah and, and I always I think that complicated my own understanding of depression as being this thing that is like incapacitating for a lot of people you know what's interesting though we kind of overlooked Ron Artest in all this yeah that's right, right. Like, I, I feel like that's Ron right. Artest is one of the very first guys like mm-hmm. after he won, you know, after he helped Kobe win that championship in two thousand, <laughs> he saved Kobe's uh, ass. Yes, yes, he saved Kobe's ass. Right, yes. yeah. Uh, he thanked his therapist. And, right, yeah. Yeah, right. And you know, he's been kind of outspoken about you know going to therapy and going mm-hmm. to anger management and how it's helped him. And I think I don't watch this show on Big Brother, uh, Celebrity Big Brother, the one with Omarosa. We had an anxiety attack on that. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Safe space. <laughs> yeah, right. right you know, I, I, if I watched it, I would admit it. Right? <laughs> but I didn't. I missed it. Um, but yeah, you know, so like uh, that's the guy I was for. But I just wonder if there's something about Run Our Test that doesn't seem quite right, right. Um, accessible, like Kevin Love or, or DeMar DeRozan, who seem like much... <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better term, like much more um, like regular guys, like yeah, um, yeah. Like part know, of Ron Artest's reputation was that he was crazy, right? Like, I mean, and that's mm-hmm. and that's like loaded in all these ways. But like that was like, oh, he's he's crazy, right? And that's ableist. Yeah. Well, the other guy was Royce White, who came into the yeah. league um, first round draft pick by the Rockets and was very out front about um, his anxiety mm-hmm. and that um, mm-hmm. and he's talked. This past week about like why wasn't anybody there for me mm-hmm. when I yeah. had these issues and kind of brought these to the fore and people were like, who is this guy? He hasn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Why is he like making all these demands? And that's why I think the marketing here, I don't know how like conscious somebody like Kevin Love is about how he's packaging this, but mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that the way that he was perceived is, as you said, it's like he's a regular guy. Mm -hmm. And I think the important thing, and this is back to our previous conversation, 
he and DeMar DeRozan, they're not asking anyone to do anything. Uh, sure, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're yep. just like, here's like my story. And then people will be like, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And like, all they're asking is for people to give them a plus one or a thumbs up <laughs> or, you know, Kevin Love said that they got 6,000 emails in like three days. And I don't mean to be um, blasé. And I'm and this is like, helped, I'm sure, huge numbers of people, both directly and indirectly by having this conversation out there. I'm just saying that when, to, in order to start that conversation, you need somebody who's like a friendly, mm-hmm. uncomplicated mm-hmm. figure rather than somebody like Ron Artest or Royce White. And Royce White was actually making some pr- pretty serious demands. The, I think he was, drafted by the, he was drafted by the Rockets, right? He, he, his anxiety yeah. made it so that he couldn't fly, right? And he was sort yeah, of saying he wanted, right, to, right. he wanted to be on a bus. He wanted to take a bus to the games. But, and they're like, I mean, and look, the NBA could, the Houston Rockets could probably find some alternative means of travel for him. They could just say, we'll only play you in home games or something, right? We'll only play you in games that are like driving distance. There is some arrangement they could have entered into with him that could have ameliorated some of this problem. But instead, he's out of the league. I think he's playing in Canada right now. But he was making demands of his of his employers. Like, I, in order for me to to be functional as a basketball player, this is a, this is a thing I need from you guys. And they were like, no, right? And so that's, I mean, to your point, like he was making an ask um, that, I think will make a lot of people uncomfortable. I think it, like a lot, if you open it up to like random sports fans, they're like, no, like this is the rules for everybody. This should be the rules for you. But that's sort of the problem, right? Yeah. Right. Well, that, and it's sort of instructive, right? Because I mean, the one thing about DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love is that they're valuable. They're out, they're all stars. Um, and they're guys that teams are going to make concessions for. And you can, we would learn probably a lot more about how open the NBA is to this stuff. And, you know, the consideration of issues with it's more telling how they treat Royce White than how they treat DeMar DeRozan and how they give them space. Um, And, you know, like you said, Royce White made some some great points. But I mean, the thing is, is that the NBA, you know, they've got the money, they've got the resources, they can do all this, and they're not great at handling mental health. And that's the same as every other industry in the world. Like, you know, it's very difficult. If you're DeMar DeRozan and you're Kevin Love, you've got the money and you've got the resources, you can say, hey, I have these problems and people are willing to work with you through that. Whereas, you know, Royce White is probably a little bit more uh, of avatar for the rest of us. Is that, you know, man, if you if you can't show up to work, you know, your, your employer might get rid of you. Absolutely. There was a video on the Players' Tribune of Kevin Love talking to Channing Fry, who's not on the Cavs anymore, but was the teammate of his. And Channing Fry talked about how he had a lot of, uh, you know, anxiety problems around, you know, he had a heart condition. Mm-hmm. His parents both died um, within a month of each other. He talked about driving to the practice facility and crying the whole time that he's driving and talked about how his teammates really supported him through that um, period. And we, you know, as sports fans, we talk about team chemistry and the context of like how guys play together on the court. But I was just thinking and listening to that conversation. It's like, this is your workplace. Mm-hmm. And irrespective of how you know well you get along with somebody on the court, like it's going to make a huge difference for your quality of life and mental health. If you have just like guys around who you can like talk to and open up to, and it seemed like the Cavs you know, were able to do that for Channing Fry. There's some parent issues in the Cavs <laughs> locker room this year. And sure. The interesting thing there is that like, you know, Isaiah Thomas is the one who's like been blamed for that. And that guy has gone through 
a oh, tremendous no. amount yeah. with his sister mm-hmm. being killed in a car oh, accident. No, no. And um, every, like Kevin Love said, everybody's going through, going through something. something. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering, Joel, if like you, when you were playing uh, football, if you had <laughs> teammates that you could like talk <laughs> about stuff with, like did this hit home for you? Like what, what was that atmosphere I'm, like? It's interesting that you're asking that because I thought about, I was thinking about this and I was like, yo, like I had, I don't want to say crippling anxiety, but before games, I would get extremely nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just something that, you know, I, I would bobble the ball or just, I, I just had like these issues. Dylan, I always wonder, I was like, do, I, do other people feel like this? I just like, are other people nervous, you know, going out in front of these games? And it's something nobody would ever talk about. Nobody mm-hmm. could ever talk to it. Um, and the one instance I can think of of a guy that, hey, man, I'm not feeling a little confident right now. Um, after he'd given up a like an ADR touchdown to us, it was a joke. Like, everybody laughed at it. You know, it was something like it was a sign of weakness mm-hmm. among our team for, like, a couple years. Um, and so, yeah, man, so it's just really, I, you know, I, I, I wondered about that, about how, the, how these guys, I was like, don't they ever get nervous? Don't they ever have anxiety issues? Like, and how do they ever come back from that? Um, and that's just, like, stigma. Probably, that's just stigma talking about on-field stuff. That's like, right. Yeah, you can't even. I yeah. mean, I couldn't even imagine like bringing in off-field stuff if people are going to laugh at you about, about like saying that you know you gave up a touchdown pass. I was reading about um, oh, yeah. Paramatha Sucker uh, from from uh, Arsenal, the center back for Arsenal, and he was saying like um, he's he's retiring at the end of the season, at the end of this campaign, and he was basically like, "Yo, like for my entire career, like I would have like debilitating anxiety before before matches, right?" Like he was saying like. Uh, he would have like he he had to stop change the way he ate because he would have like violent diarrhea because of nerves before games. Oh, uh, and he was just saying like it would happen. And his his, his whole roommate would always point out like yo the night before you go to bed you like would like shake in your sleep. Like he was saying that it was like it was taking so much of a toll on him. Like like um and and like you said that's just that's just like on field stuff. That was like him being worried about the fact that like the way he was perceived publicly was entirely based on his own fi- on pitch performance right yeah um mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. like that was the the metric that like everyone was going to look at him like the the prism through which everyone was going to view him um and how debilitating it was and he said like he wants to sort of like bring more attention to that but we don't think of those things as like mental health issues right we think of them as like oh like if someone you know someone is suddenly not performing or they're nervous you know they have the yips or whatever right like you know what i mean we don't think of those things as like mental health problems um yeah. and i also thought about like kevin love in particular um um you know he, he plays with lebron james and if there's like any person um who was sort of like this like paragon of like both of masculinity but also of like stability right i mean like he's never been injured right like i, I can yeah. i'm trying to imagine when we talk about like masculinity in these sports we often talk about like the people who are held up as like man men's men are people who like go through all this stuff and just sort of soldier through, right? You're going back to Brett Favre, like it was sort of the deification of Brett Favre was all around the fact that he never missed a game. But LeBron has played 15 years at an incredible level and has never gotten hurt. And I just imagine that some other thing that's informing is like the the template for which people have of like excellence is this sort of like oh. this sort of flawless execution without sort of any like like and like boundless confidence, right? And like if you fall short of that, I imagine that must be really really scary and jarring. Yeah, and this, I mean, this obviously happened at a at different time, right? But, like, just think about, like, the narrative that went around Kobe as he was going through um, his rape case in Colorado and mm-hmm. going back and forth and playing in playoff games. And people, like, actually were giving him, um, they were praising him for his ability to focus and compartmentalize during that time, right? Oh, um, and so, like, that has to, you have to look at how that, maybe that would have affected anybody else in the locker room that was like, well, man, you know, 
I mean, Kobe, <laughs> you know, Kobe, uh, you know, is going through this rape trial and <clears throat> or this rape case and somehow coming back and showing up and, you know, you know, playing to the best of his ability. I just, you, you wonder what sort of like, what sort of message that sends to everybody else in there. If they feel comfortable about opening up or like voicing their problem, because, you know, it may, you know, we, we don't really have, we don't really have the language or, 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 or any, or any mechanisms for dealing with those sort of people. Um, you know, Absolutely. I just think about Nick Anderson, man. That Absolutely. Dude. That was exactly what I was thinking about. Right. Yeah, man, that, that guy, yeah, just, I mean, he crumbled in front of us and never really recovered. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess nobody wants to be that guy, you know? Yeah, missing those free throws in the finals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great yeah. point. And LeBron, man, he's got to live up to Michael Jordan. I Absolutely. Le- LeBron's, LeBron's <laughs> got his uh, stuff he's got to deal with, too. I'm, mm-hmm. always, I'm always stepping yeah. up at the end of the segment to defend LeBron. Because <laughs> he you needs know, all the defense know. in the world, right? <laughs> if only he could, LeBron James can find some way to muddle through. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now it is time for afterballs. Before we get started, we've got to anoint our afterball name for the week. And I was looking back at that Loyola Chicago team. One of the like crazy things about that '63 team that the one the NCAA title was. The game against Cincinnati went into overtime, 45 minutes. They had five guys play the whole game. No, wow. su- no subs. Wow. So, so the refs were like on their side that day. Um, <laughs> so they Nobody were, got fouled out. Yeah. yeah, they were they were Iron Men. But I was doing a little bit more reading, and it wasn't necessarily by choice. Two of their best players were dropped from the team in the middle of the year because they didn't have the grades. Based on what I read, it was like a fraction of a point. Who knows? Wow. Who knows how accurate that is? But one of the guys who got dropped from the Loyola Chicago title squad was this guy Pablo Robertson, who was five foot seven. He um, won the MVP of the Rucker Pro Tournament uh-huh. in 1969, six wow. years wow. after um, he was on Loyola, and he was on the Harlem Glo- Globetrotters. He was one of their like dribbling specialists, mm. and uh, his primary claim to fame is that he was one of the characters on the 1970s Harlem Globetrotters animated television show. The Hanna-Barbera one? I, th- I believe so. Mm-hmm. So this guy did not get an NCAA title, but he did get to be an animated Harlem Globetrotter. So like <laughs> yeah. trade-offs. He died in 2015, unfortunately, so he's not around to, oh. to get his due now. But Pablo Robertson, we're going to give him his due on the podcast today. Shout out to Pablo. Yeah, who oh, wants to go? Shout out who wants to go first, Gene? You want to go first? Sure. Uh, my afterball is, is sort of just uh, is, is a it's a frustration that is like born of some good things, I guess. I suppose in the aggregate, uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, 
all NBA seasons are sort of defined by injuries in some way, right? Some star gets hurt, whatever. Um, obviously, you guys have talked about Markel Fultz's like, phantom, mysterious injury. Yeah. Um, that mm-hmm. no one has figured out what exactly happened there. As a Sixers fan, has been like incredibly frustrating. I got to um, stop you and say congratulations on the Sixers making the playoffs. I meant to do that earlier. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big, big day for you. They've clinched a, a winning big record for the first for time. Yeah, I know. Between the, the Eagles and the man, it's, it's what a time to be alive. Um, if you left Villanova, it would, this would really. I mean, I know. I know. It'd be it'd be crazy. It's, it's too much. It's too much. It's like going from <laughs> from from. Uh, uh, worse the first it feels like but like this season like uh the false thing is sort of has been frustrating but also like watching the Kawhi Leonard saga play out has been this like this season has been defined by these mm. phantom injuries that nobody knows like that we like have no like intel on right uh Kawhi Leonard's been out all season with this injury this like quad injury that uh by all accounts is healed right um and uh at this point it's like threatened to d- completely destabilize like one of the model franchises in professional sports, right? Like, like apparently they had a very testy team meeting a couple of days ago, um, being like, yo, man, when are you coming back? Like, what are you doing right now? Um, he's been cleared for weeks now to play, I think. Um, and the same thing happened with Markel Fultz, um, which is like uh, Brett Brown, the Sixers coach, was like, you know, Markel can decide whether he wants to come back or not. Um, and I'm, I'm just sort of wondering if we're going to enter into this era where by, by like, because players have so much agency now, which is a good thing, which is an unalloyed good thing. Um, for those players, if we're going to enter into this this universe in which that happens more and more often, and remember just a few years ago, Derek Rose sat out uh, uh, after he like one of his many injuries, um, and he basically said like I'm not going to come back this season, and he was like criticized pretty heartily like in the in the press because of that decision, and now I think people are a little bit less frustrated with uh, the with with. Uh, I should say we as fans are less frustrated with uh, Kawhi Leonard and Markel Fultz outside of just being confounded about what's happening there. Um, but yeah. um, it does seem like we're going to enter into this this space in which more and more, especially players who like Markel Fultz is projected to be a star and Kawhi Leonard is obviously one of the four or five best players in the NBA. Um, we are just got, not going to know like what's going on because more and more people are going to be like, like fuck the team doctors. Like I'm gonna I'm going to avail myself of my own doctors, and they're going to tell, and I'm going to follow their advice or follow my own counsel on this, which is something that like would not have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's a both a very good thing that these players have the agency um, and the authority to make those decisions, but I I bet we're walking into a world where even like you know. The the incredible basketball intel <laughs> provided to us by like Woj or whatever. Like even th- we still won't be able to figure out like what the hell is going on. Like here are two very important NBA players, and nobody can tell us anything about what is happening with them. And so that's like the, that's yeah. the thing I'm sort of like fascinated by, and maybe a little frustrated by. But they got to do what they got to do. Such yeah. such weird stories, like the Kawhi thing. I th- I think Kawhi and Markel Fultz both benefit from the markets that they're playing in in different ways. Kawhi, just because uh-huh. San Antonio is like just enough off the beaten path. Like, can you imagine him mm-hmm. trying to do this in New York? Oh, no, not at all. Right. Or oh, LA. Yeah. Like, he also got a ring with them. So, you know, like, you know. He's just like, he's great and everybody knows that he's great, but he's just not like top of mind. Mm-hmm. And he's uh-huh. just like gone under the radar. I feel like he wouldn't have been able to do in another market. And with Fultz... Like, you know, we're here congratulating Gene for the Sixers making the playoffs. Like, <laughs> right. he there, there's enough other, like, happy, good stuff going on 
in Philly that like even for like how insane his story is, mm-hmm. there's just like other stuff that people want to talk about. Absolutely. So I can just imagine both of those guys being in different circumstances and becoming like pariahs, but with the exact same behavior. Oh yeah, I mean the Sixers don't make the playoffs. The Sixers won 35 games this year. The the conversation about Markel Fultz is like you should come back and help. Yeah. You know they don't have enough shooting, right? Yeah. There would have been a whole right. different conversation about him holding out or sitting out. Yeah. And Kawhi has this like credibility built up from like the kind of guy that he was, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically a, a silent one. Um, but uh, but you know that buys you a lot of credibility with fans and uh, and other people. And so you know you just it, it is interesting that people haven't been willing to like get out there and jump on him for it. But yeah, I mean he, he may find out um, because San Antonio kind of can 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 hide you a little bit, mm-hmm. and if he somehow were to end up in L.A. and like you said New Oof. York. Um, the narrative on him could change really, really quickly. Yeah. All right, Joel, what do you what do you got for us? What's your Pablo Robertson? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, I know that we were um, without giving it away that uh, owners are a topic here, and um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bob McNair. Um, mm-hmm. I I grew up in Houston, uh, loving my you know now long gone. Uh, Houston Oilers. Condolences. Wait, do do you root for the Texans or the Titans? Or do you not root for either of those teams? I don't root for anybody. Else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as a as a result of this, mm-hmm. um, you know, I love you, Blue, and like I can't love anybody else in quite the same way. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, I was a kid. You know, I was a kid when the Oilers were in Houston, and uh, so I did, You know, there wasn't Wikipedia, there wasn't Google, so there wasn't a lot of ways that I could find about the politics of, of you know the the owner of the Oilers at the time, who was Bud Adams. But um, what I did know about him is that he was willing to go get Warren Moon from Canada mm-hmm. and make him the face of a Southern NFL franchise, which, you know, man, that was not a lot of black quarterbacks in the NFL at the time. Even fewer of them were the quarterbacks in the face of franchises down in the South. Mm-hmm. That meant something. Um, and so and now I kind of wonder if, like, I would have been better off not knowing the politics of some of my hometown team's owners. Um, or the ones that I wanted to root for. People always ask me, they're like, yo, Joel, like, do you root for the Texans? Just like you did. I was like, nah. And it, it, it had nothing to do with Bob McNair. It just had to do with, you know, I haven't lived in Houston, you know, uh, full-time since 1996. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I just, I relate to sports a little bit differently now. I only root for, like, my alma mater. But um, even if I wanted to, if I wanted to root for the Texans, Bob McNair would probably make that difficult um and part of the reason he's, he's in the news again now um i think it was yesterday for coming to the defense of carolina panthers owner uh, jerry richardson uh, like a character who was like clearly created from like an antebellum narrative right um, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, uh, you know the allegations against jerry richardson do not make him much of a empathetic character like this is a dude who this isn't like just somebody who's from another era who says like these charmingly impolitic things like your grandfather, you know, right? Um, no, like this is a guy who's accused of asking female employees if he could shave their legs, um, offering to pay for their manicures, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting them alone in his office and then uh, asking them to give him a foot massage. Um, you know, there were other employees that accused him of giving back rubs that lingered too long or went too low below the spine. You know, he had employees refer to him as Mr. Um, and there was also this, like, this weird thing with like, the seatbelt maneuver, you know, which, I mean, I guess if you were 17 years old and a perv and you're, like, trying to reach over, you know, your date, like, you know, he, you can imagine, like, what the seatbelt maneuver is. Just use your imagination. Um, but apparently this is, like, where the sympathies of 
Bob McNair lie. Like, you know, and I guess it shouldn't be a big surprise, but he, he, he said, um, talking to the media um, before this week's owners meeting, he was like, I know Jerry, he's an outstanding person. Some of the comments he might've made could have been made jokingly and misunderstood. Mm. I'm sure he didn't mean to offend anybody. Well, like, I just gave you the litany of allegations and accusations against Jerry Richardson. Like, it's not like, these aren't like comments. These aren't just comments, right? Like, mm. these are like uh, a, a laundry list of allegations of, um, you know, using his power in a particularly like, you know, perverse way. But keeping this in mind about Bob McNair, you know, he, earlier this fall, he apologized for saying we can't have the inmates running the prison. He was mm-hmm. referring to players during an owner's only meeting. In 2015, he donated and then retracted $10,000 for the opponents of an equal rights ordinance in Houston. And in between, like, he's been reported to have been one of the NFL's largest political donors. Some of those donations have gone to, you know, people like Marco Rubio and all these other, you know, he gave a million dollars to Donald Trump's inauguration ball and that's fine. Like, you know, you can have your politics, but like, that's kind of, you know, where, where he stands right now. Um, and so I guess like, you know, I think about all that and I think about, you know, Houston and football and like growing up loving, you know, those Oilers. And I just think, man, you know, couldn't we get Bud Adams back? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's funny after, after the Eagles won, I kept, the thing I was actually like rooting for, one of the things I was like, quietly thinking to myself was like, yo, I hope Jeff Lurie doesn't say anything that will make me like live it. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, I mean, like there's a way in which, you know, like a lot of those dudes are in, like have such unfathomable wealth and they're insulated from, you know, uh, the consequences of some of the stuff they stay, say or do. Um, and, you know, it's just yeah. like, I think we're like long overdue to have a reckoning about a lot of this stuff that, especially the way that people have treated their employees, particularly female employees. But like, man, yeah. that was one of the things like hovering over like a lot. Like I imagine a lot of sports fans are probably like, I don't want to know uh, the sort of uh, potentially like revanchist politics of the billionaire owner who, who runs my beloved uh, sports teams. Oh, yeah. Think about anything that you love and what you, you may end up hating. I mean, whether that's, you know, the easiness of Amazon Prime or, <laughs> you know, the affordable prices of Walmart, or, you know, being able to communicate with your family on Facebook, you know. <laughs> There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Yeah. Right. Do. Exactly. Exactly. So my uh, team, my beloved childhood team, did not leave the New Orleans Saints. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna yeah. get into why. Okay. Let's 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 hear it. Um, so the Saints owner Tom Benson, who also owns the Pelicans now, the NBA team, died a few weeks ago at the age of 90. He was celebrated in the city on Friday with a second line through the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. Drew Brees and Anthony Davis were honorary pallbearers at Benson's funeral in wow. St. Louis Cathedral. Davis said it was an honor he would cherish as long as he lived. Wow. What? <laughs> How many times do you think they kicked it? I mean, somebody, right. somebody needs to send this to my to my guy AD because uh, he needs <laughs> he needs to cherish other things a lot more than You're he right. cherishes this honor. But um, in his eulogy for Benson, New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amen said the following: Tom loved the city of New Orleans, and he gave so much to help the city as he brought the Saints and Pelicans here, as he kept the Saints here in New Orleans as part of the rebuilding after Katrina and as a sign of hope to the city. That is a lovely sentiment that happens to be totally untrue. Uh, The (laughs) thing that kept the Saints in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina was Hurricane Katrina, which, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, As Joe Nacera laid out 
very well in a 2006 piece for the Times Magazine. This was a few months after Katrina, which was August 2005. Um, Benson uh, had negotiated a ridiculous sweetheart deal with the state long before the storm, um, one in which he personally he personally got all of the concession money and the parking revenue from Saints games. Wait, like, what? Went straight, went straight to him. He also got, in addition to like just having a ri- ridiculous like rent mm-hmm. deal with the Superdome. It's not like he owned the, the stadium. He did, they just like gave him all of this, like all of the revenue from sure. it. Um, he additionally every year got eighteen million dollars just as like straight cash. The state would just like give him money for what reason? Just for not moving the team. Oh my like, god! Like he would just oh, continually god. extort the state and be like, "I'm eh, not really happy with my deal." And they just renegotiated and renegotiated. And the state, with like chronic budget problems, would just give him eighteen million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, this wasn't good enough for Tom Benson. He wanted a new stadium. Is all. Sports owners do. He was always threatening to leave if he didn't get one. Then Katrina happens, Mm -hmm. August 2005. The team plays three of its home games in San Antonio that year, if you guys remember. They played four games in Tiger Stadium Mm -hmm. at LSU, and they played one quote-unquote home game um, at Giant Stadium. And And the Superdome, obviously, is where, like, everyone found refuge during the storm, yeah? Superdome is where everyone found refuge, obviously. Um, Not only was, you know, the Superdome – taken up by other more you know other other things but the building was not in any condition to host a football team the city was obviously in no condition to host a team that year so they had these various temporary homes so the mayor of san antonio is like circling the Mm. the situation vulture that he is says that he was uh in october of 2005 says he's comfortable in saying benson wanted to move the team to san antonio permanently in december espn reported that Benson might sue the league to keep the team in San Antonio if the league wanted um, to demand that he, that they move back to New Orleans. So at that point, it looked like Benson was going to use Katrina as an excuse to move the franchise to a city that would give him more money and give him a new stadium. But, and this is back to the Jonas era piece from 2006, he argues very persuasively, the fact that Katrina devastated the city ultimately made it such that it was just politically untenable for Benson to be able to move sure. the team. And they probably would have moved. Mm-hmm. He would have gotten out and gotten the new stadium out of San Antonio if Katrina hadn't happened. So it was the NFL. We all like hate on the NFL and the NFL sucks. Don't get me wrong, but it was the NFL yeah. and it was commissioner Paul Tagliabue as Nasser wrote in his piece who insisted that the saints play games in t- Louisiana during that season. He persuaded the state and Benson to delay the out clause in his lease by a year to give everyone more time to figure out how to proceed. It was Tagliabue who had um, the NFL deal directly with Superdome officials overseeing the repair of the stadium. It wasn't Benson who did that. It was the NFL. And um, it was Tagliabue who announced that the Saints would play in New Orleans, who basically demanded that the Saints play in New Orleans for the 2006 season. And, you know, I think you guys probably remember that first game back against oh, the Falcons. It was like one of the game, right? Yeah, one of the yeah. best, you know, moments of rebuilding after Katrina. Steve Gleason blocked the punt. It was like unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Tom Benson didn't want to do that. Absolutely. He wanted to be he wanted to be yeah. gone by then. Um the Saints of course have been in the city every year since. They won the Super Bowl in 2010. And the Super Bowl win was like painted as like this is part of the city's comeback, right? This is it was. Of- mm-hmm. yeah. And in the years after that controversy, Benson has said 
uh, that all that stuff about moving the team was blown out of proportion, mm, of course. Which, is a, which is a total crock. It's, it's, you know, let's even stipulate that it was blown out of proportion, which I don't believe in, but let's just take his word for it. Mm-hmm. Even so, it is undeniable that in the like months after Katrina, when the city and its people like needed leaders and civic institutions to step up and stand up and say, we are standing behind the city. We are going to be here. We are going to be a part of the rebuilding. He definitely never said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he led New Orleanians to believe that he was looking for a way out. And the reason the New Orleanians believed he was looking for a way out is because he was looking for a way out. <laughs> um, so that line from the eulogy about Benson keeping the saints here as part of the rebuilding after Katrina as a sign of hope to the city is really a perverse attempt to rewrite history. Uh, so whenever it is that Paul Tagliabue dies, I'm flying down for his second line. <laughs> I was not second lining for Tom Benson. <laughs> that is our show for today. Thank you very much to the great Gene Demby for, for coming on. Thank you, man. Appreciate, appreciate you. Joel Anderson of ESPN. Always appreciate you coming on the show, sir. Oh, my pleasure, man. It's always fun. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and filling in for him today are Danielle Hewitt and Mary Wilson. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. This week, I want to endorse the Slate spoiler special podcast, wherein they dispense with the dumb convention that reviewers shouldn't tell you what happens in the movie, and they just tell you what goddamn happens in the goddamn movie. (laughs) It is really quite glorious. You should listen and subscribe wherever and however you get your podcasts. It is the Slate spoiler special. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>